Good morning, everyone. We are at the Freiburg New Church Assembly. This is week two. Our theme is the life of Jesus, his teachings, the parables, and uh, an overview of the Gospels. I'm Gard Perry, and I'm going to talk about the historical Jesus. So uh, I was going to start with a funny story just because it's good for people to laugh at the beginning of a story. How about it? Want a funny story? Raise your hand if you think you've heard the one about the moth who flies into a psychiatrist's office. Okay, I have told this before. All right. Well, a good story is worth hearing more than once. Don't you agree? So a moth flies in to a psychiatrist's office. The psychiatrist said, what seems to be the problem? The moth said, I have a sore foot. Psychiatrist said, aha, you need a podiatrist. I'm a psychiatrist. Why did you fly in here? The moth said, well, your light was on. <laughs> All right. Hey, it's, come on, come on. It's, you got to think about it. Now, uh, just before I leave that story, there are those who believe there's an inner meaning to it. Your light was on. Do you believe that you might have a light that ought to be on? Maybe that relates to what Allison was talking about in the oil and the lamps. Our lights ought to be on. So, um, and the psychiatrist, of course, gave an answer that, do you think Jesus would have given that answer? Yes or no? No. He would have recognized that the moth needed some help and would have offered some help, or at least, you know, brought him to a podiatrist. So, uh, would have had compassion for the moth. All right. So, uh, I would like to think that this was going to be a conversation, but because I'm standing up here and you're over there, I'm probably going to have to do most of the speaking. But I would ask you, please do most of the listening. <laughs> and I'll work with you if you'll work with me. I'm speaking about a subject I think I know a lot about, and I actually was not either able or willing to write out or even make an outline of what I want to say. So um, I believe, however, um, I can get to the end and uh, and then start at the beginning and then go through a middle. So I'm going to start at the end and I'm going to come with an idea that I believe is supported by history but is not something that actually happened, apparently is not something that actually happened. Um, and that is uh, associated with the idea of refuge. So if I say the word refuge, what does it mean to you? Let's start there so we can get a feeling of what refuge means. Then I'll, I'll probably just have to speak for a while. But let's start there. And I want a few more hands. Kenneth, what does refuge mean to you? A safe place to stop and rest. A safe place to stop and rest. Martha? No, then I Susanna? More of someone moving or leaving, having left. Refuge. 
refugee. Well, a refugee, you mean? Yes. Okay, and where's a refugee going? Okay, what are they leaving? A violent place. They're trying to find a safe place. Is that right? Refuge, refugee, uh, Susanna and then George? Asylum. Asylum. What does asylum mean to you? Asylum is a place where you cannot be arrested, a sanctuary. There are, have you heard the term sanctuary house? And these were common in the um, ancient world, by the way. Um, George? Well, the word speaks about cities of refuge. Cities of refuge, and what were they? Well, if I was out working in the field with an axe, and the axe head flew off the handle and killed my neighbor, uh, the family often felt it needed to get <coughs> revenge. That, and, but if I fled to the city of refuge, uh, they could not come get me. Right. So, uh, and I could plead my case with okay. the uh, priests. So there's a literal meaning to the word refuge. Um, that's primarily found in the ancient world. It's also found in the Asian world. Um, if you're Buddhist, by the way, you take refuge with uh, the, they call it refuge with the, th the three jewels of Buddhism, Sangha, the Dharma, and the Buddha. You are under their protection and nothing internal which are poisons, you're actually cleansed of those, can harm you, and nothing from the outside can harm you. So it's a, isn't that a beautiful idea? So um, I'm going to propose an outcome of the history of Jesus' early years that leads me to an idea that he was offering refuge to his followers in a very literal way that we would not have suspected. Go ahead. I want to ask you to turn on the mic. It's on your belt. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That he would have... Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> whoa. Is that too loud? <laughs> okay. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, I believe he was offering refuge in a very literal way that we would not suspect given the way history has come down to us. And um, so I want to just paint a little picture of uh, how history has come down to us and reference a couple of historical facts that changed life considerably from the time Jesus was uh, living and walking on the earth and beginning his mystery. Oh, this is going to, his ministry. So the first thing to know is that within uh, 40 years of his life on earth, Palestine and the Jews and, and Jerusalem and the temple suffered a catastrophe beyond belief. Uh, there was an uprising of Jews who finally had enough. They could not tolerate the uh, Roman occupation and the corruption of their own king. And a group of them became what are called zealots. They took up arms 
And despite the warnings and the pleas and the efforts of the Pharisees, please don't do this, it will result in our destruction. They did not listen and what we find within 40 years is a complete destruction, execution, mass executions, and a, the di second diaspora where Jews fled into other countries. And Judaism effectively ended its what, what is called now the classical period. And what began was um, the real development of the synagogue tradition, which had begun earlier, but at this point after the destruction of the temple and they weren't together anymore is when they began to write down all of the traditions that were associated with the law and that became their written uh, uh, explanation of the Torah. The Torah they had in writing but all of those explanations of how to live and uh, what to do on a daily basis to stay connected with God hadn't been written down yet. Those were the oral tradition which the Pharisees and others communicated to the people and it was a very, I believe, a very live religion and as we'll see a little later it was not as bad as we generally tend to think by virtue of the report from the Gospels and elsewhere. And what we know is that the Gospels weren't written until after the destruction of the temple. That was 70 AD. The first Gospel wasn't written until probably after that. So what were they writing about? They were writing in hindsight, looking back at all these terrible things that happened. And of course they would be expecting Jesus to come back again. And much of the theology that we find in the uh, Gospels and the letters of Paul is about just that. And they're trying to work out, how's it going to work? How's it going to happen? Are they going to come up from the ground and be resurrected at the second uh, coming, so to speak, and they were wondering, would he come in person? Would he? They didn't know. And one generation after another came and went, and he still, quote unquote, hadn't come. And people are still trying to work that out. Now, of course, by the way, in the new church, um, we uh, believe the second coming has already happened, and it is in us happened in the spiritual world, where the um, heavens were reordered so that the flow of divine love and wisdom could come back, could come through to people um, without the evils in the external heavens uh, preventing that. And uh, that happened by virtue of our writings at the time Swedenborg clarified what the nature of life in the heavens is and on earth and how they're connected. That would be the second coming. And the first coming was when Jesus came. And that's our subject. So he, whatever he did, he did clarify the relationship between the heavens and the earth and uh, allowed for a communication uh, to occur. Now, how are we to know in light of the history that the Gospels were written after the <coughs> destruction of the temple and also after uh, so much violence had occurred as the result, in part, of events after Jesus' ministry, which they might have associated with Jesus' ministry, uh, which was uh, very violent. And um, also in the Gospels, um, there is so much material that is written 
about the church at a later time that it's hard to find out which material in the Gospels is about Jesus in the time before a the destruction of the temple of course but also before his execution and before the last days of his ministry so I'm gonna um, sort of work back with you um, historically for a moment to realize that when Jesus's ministry occurred I believe it's pretty safe to say historically that he was about 30 years old and that his ministry lasted only three years. And that the events recorded in the Gospels are pretty much about those three years, which is a very small portion of his life. Okay. And that, um, and this is my first uh, controversial statement, I, it's possible there were some unintended consequences to Jesus' activity that he himself may not have anticipated. Now, uh, <laughs> that's going to be tough to defend with this group. I know that. That's going to be tough. So, uh, I'm going to work backwards with you from age 30. And has everybody, everybody heard about the missing uh, 18 years in Jesus' life? because there's no reference to Jesus' life between the age of 12 and 30. I hope that's 18. Is it? Okay. And then from 12, there's only uh, the reference to his infancy, which um, one cannot exactly say is historical. Um, it does not mean that it's not true. It does mean that it is presented on the basis of prophecy from the Old Testament, which was their way of knowing what would happen. And this is what they surmised, in, had to be in hindsight, as we know. It was, the Gospel was written well after Jesus' life. So as historians, quote-unquote, they had to be, those who were writing this, had to be piecing together how, what, would have hap what would have had to happen at his birth for him to become this kind of person. Well, it would have had to have been a miraculous birth. So they depict that. Um, then, um, the next time we meet him in the Gospels is age 12. And they must have asked themselves, what must he have been like at the age of 12 for him to have accomplished what he did? Well, he must have been very bright he must have known a lot about the scriptures and have been able to interact at the age of 12 with the teachers of the law and impressed them. That is not implausible to me. That part I can, I can accept pretty much on face value. And then there's this gap between the age of 12 and 30 and by the time the gospel writers are writing, he's already active and uh, with presumably a fairly large following of people. And my view is this, just to touch on the, that aspect of the history and what could possibly be a thought of as an unintended consequence is that more people follow Jesus than 
And by the way, before I continue uh, saying this, I'm saying these words in this way simply to paint a picture. I do not know that this is what happened, and I am certainly not trying to um, uh, portray Jesus as less than what he was. What I'm, I'm trying to do is to create a historical setting for his life and uh, one of the historical, and also to get to this notion of refuge, which I believe may have been what he was aiming toward. It did not happen. It did not happen because more and more people began to follow him. This was a big problem in the Middle East. And maybe I'll pause here. Why would it be a problem in a country that was occupied by Rome? They had conquered the, this portion of the Holy Land in, I believe, 63 BC, which was 60 years before Jesus was born. Prior to that, the Romans were not in that area. They came in and they, uh, so here's a little history, they established a king that would be friendly to them. What was his name? His name was Herod. And, and they would say, and actually I would say, Herod was a good king. Can anybody imagine why Herod would be a good king in relation to this notion that a big problem developed for Jesus and his ministry when a larger and larger number of people began to follow him? What would a good king be in a country occupied by Rome where Rome could, at the least provocation, send a thousand troops in and execute quite a few people? What would a good king have to do? Keep the peace. There it is right there. His job was to keep the peace. And he did. Herod was a very, very good at it. Now, he had not only to keep the peace with the Romans, he had to keep the peace with the Jews because if he didn't portray himself as a good Jew, they would rise up. They were passionate about the law. And, uh, and so he had to do a, a major balancing act, which he was uh, very successful at all the way up to his death, which was uh, Herod the king who was appointed by the Jews died about the time Jesus was born. Herod had two sons. Uh, the first was Antipas, and he was the, uh, not called a king because he wasn't king of the whole country. They divided it into two basic uh, areas, and he was the tetrarch, they called it, of Galilee. And his brother, whose name was similar, I'm not pulling it up right at the moment, was the tetrarch of Judea, where Jerusalem was. Now, Jerusalem was very, very difficult to rule because uh, every year they had festivals there. They had more and more people coming. There was a lot of tension. Uh, Roman uh, soldiers would come to the city and uh, try to keep the peace. There was a, I mean, pressures were building. Herod was trying to uh, tell the Sanhedrin, which managed the temple. These were the temple priests. Please don't let the crowd get out of control because you know what will happen. 
So this was the atmosphere in which Jesus was a teacher. All right, that kind of paints what we um, may know, excuse me, of the unimaginable difficulty of becoming a teacher of peace, which Jesus was. I, I believe Jesus came to teach a whole new kind of truth. It was not exactly like the Jewish model of truth and peace that had developed up to his lifetime. Now, I'm going to step backwards a few years again now and away from Jerusalem. So, uh, just by way of review, by, by saying Jerusalem, it's automatically fraught with uh, a, a conflict, violence, and imminent uprising. Jerusalem is automatically that way. And Herod and his son was not as good at that, and that's why there was a destruction later. The son did not keep the peace bad king. Okay. His other son, though, was a good king in the sense that he not only kept the peace, but he kept the Romans away from Galilee. So I'm, I'm going to now present, begin to present why I believe that Jesus, that Jesus could have been teaching something other than what we've come to expect, which is refuge. So it turns out historically that Galilee was very different from its southern neighbor Judea. Uh, in a way, the Romans left them alone. What they did is they had a garrison of soldiers in a city called Caesarea on the edge of the Mediterranean, and that's where most of the soldiers were. The second number of soldiers was in Jerusalem, greatest number of soldiers was in Jerusalem. But it still wasn't a huge number because they relied on Herod and his son and the temple priests. You guys keep the peace, we'll stay out of your way, essentially. Um, now, Galilee, it was kind of like, uh, it was kind of like the countryside. It was sparsely populated, it was agrarian, and it was relatively peaceful. And the first uh, idea here historically is there were no major, there was no major Roman occupation with which Jesus grew up. So now I'm going back in time again to, in Jesus' life, to before his awakening, which is, uh, which is what the glorification is about. There was a time when Jesus was a child growing up to what I believe as a young man where he was not yet recognized. In fact, he did not recognize himself as coming with God within him. It hadn't happened yet. And so what must have, what must have life been like at that time? And my premise is that he grew up in relatively idyllic conditions, free from all of that violence. He didn't, his parents may have gone to Jerusalem, yes, he may have gone with them, but they left immediately. They didn't stay there. Okay, so the, um, the second idea is that Jesus had teachers who were good teachers. They were Pharisees. 
And the um, image of Pharisees in Galilee before um, Jesus' public ministry is very different than what we find in the Gospels. Um, they had wonderful teachings uh, based on loving kindness. That was the essential message. Uh, loving kindness to your neighbor. And I'm just going to read a couple of, uh, oh boy, and I need my glasses for this. A um, couple of the lessons that Jesus might have been hearing sitting at the feet of, of a Pharisee who uh, had, was carrying on a line of teaching about the Torah um, that was based on love to the neighbor. Jesus heard this before he began to teach it himself. In ancient days when the Torah was forgotten from Israel, okay, I'm going to skip that one because that's about um, Hillel, who was the primary teacher at that time of um, this new way of teaching. Of, uh, he renewed the teaching of love to the neighbor within the Torah that Jesus would have heard. And Hillel said, Be of the disciples of Aaron the priest, loving peace, pursuing peace. Be one who loves his fellow creatures. Draw them near to the Torah. Does that sound surprising? That's the Pharisees teaching that. That's Jesus listening to that. Around the age of 12, before his enlightenment. Here's another one. The more Torah, which means law, that's their law, the more life, the more study and contemplation, the more wisdom, the more counsel, the more discernment, the more charity, the more peace. This is what they taught. So um, I'm going on the pr a premise now that Jesus was teaching peace in a country that he knew was violent and I believe would have known that any opposition by the time his ministry was beginning to develop he would have known that any opposition to the forces of the Romans any opposition to the priests in, in Jerusalem would have resulted in violence and I believe he would have wanted to protect his followers from violence. He, and I uh, further believe that he, um, the nature of what his radical new teaching was, was that the way to meet violence was through loving the neighbor. That was the way. And that was a deeper understanding of love to the neighbor than had his teachers were teaching. They were teaching it simply to protect the law. He was teaching it now to form a new kind of community that hadn't formed yet and was now to begin to form around himself. So um, at this point, um, and, and that the outcome of that, what he would have been teaching refuge. Come to me for, well, come unto me all ye who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me and ye shall find rest for your souls in a violent world.
And the model would have been that he brought them to himself, they formed a circle around him, and he taught them. And he taught them in a way that deepened their sense of community in a way that hadn't occurred before, based on love, and that uh, they thereby would have protected themselves from the violence going around them, which was based on, what was the violence based on? It's based on what violence is based on today. Power, um, corruption, uh, compromise, which I mean is necessary to compromise just to save yourself, but it's not based on truth. And he would have said, he wouldn't, I believe, wouldn't have wanted to have to confront that. So he began to form communities, a community around himself, first in Galilee where he was free to do so. And that, as I said before, things got out of hand because once more and more followers uh, began to come around his teaching, he unfortunately did uh, come under the watchful eye of the Romans and the Sanhedrin, which is the uh, governing body of the temple and the temple priests, and he's a threat. Not because of his teaching, because of the number of people that were following him and, and misinterpreting his teaching, I believe. Yes, Kenneth. Would say again. Uh, Reverend Dr. King. And say what you just. This just sounds like you know. It sounds like he was pretty much a parallel. Okay, parallel. absolutely, that's true. Yeah. Reverend Dr. King started out as a pacifist, <coughs> taught nonviolence, and of course the violence occurred. He, he never wanted to see that kind of violence, but but social forces in society are such that violence is inevitable when powers clash. And that is as true today as it was then. We, I've been blessed to be here for two weeks. I have not listened to the news for two weeks. So I don't know the latest um, you know, major tragedy. And, this is, and these are tragedies that are going on today. And my view that I'm coming to is that the response to those among people like, I'll just say, my, speak to myself, is to find refuge from that. That does not mean that I am giving up on a force for peace and change and transformation and hope. It does not mean I've given up. It does mean that there is no way opposing these things directly can work. Didn't work in Jesus' time, hasn't ever worked, and it never will. <laughs> and it was the Dalai Lama who said uh, the only way to peace is to find peace within yourself. There is no other way. It is a transformation of consciousness. Okay, so now I would like to go into the transformation of consciousness which Jesus himself went through. And I'll just touch on this. And the major historical premise that I found had to have been true was that he would have had to have had an upbringing that supported 
his illumination, awakening, his glorification. Because he was born as, as human as we are. His life was just like a human being, with uh, ordinary human being. And Swedenborg said over and over again, he learned like we learn. In this case, sitting at the feet of a teacher, learning from what he calls the external way. The external way is simply meaning through the senses. Ear hearing and sight, reading the Torah, listening to his teachers, incorporating it, doing the practices that were available to him at that time. Those being uh, prayer, fasting, uh, participation in small religious uh, activities, and he was a quote-unquote very good student. He was very bright. He was happy. He wasn't uh, subject to violence at that time in his life. And um, so very briefly, um, something major happened. And I portray it as he was sitting in a very small synagogue in Galilee after maybe a lesson from his teacher and med meditating, contemplating the scriptures. Could have been chapter 12 in Genesis about Abram. And suddenly, in a way, God awakened in Jesus. And he saw as God sees. Incredible. I presume for him to handle that, he had to have been a strong person. Well-educated, mature, could not have been a baby, could not have been three, could not have been seven. No. It takes it completely out of what I call the realm of reality. He would have been a young man. And there is a way to understand what Swedenborg talks about infancy to understand how this could still be the case. So that's one of the controversial findings that maybe I would present was that he was probably 12 years old, by the way, which is like an 18-year-old in our society. 12 in Palestine in first century is 18 in North America or Europe. Yes? Struck by that if he had this experience, who would he have talked to about it? And his mother has been pondering things in her heart his whole life. Right. And she knew that's right. probably share with him her insight. That's beautiful. Now that, so he that's great. He, his mother was very supportive of him, and isn't that a you know a big part of how you we grow up is receiving mother love and father support. I suspect that Joseph was a very good father, regardless of what we're now, I'm not now talking about the um, theological issues involved with his paternity. I'm talking historically. He would have known his father as his father. He would have known his mother as his mother. And he had to have been prepared to see as God sees which would have been totally overwhelming. I can hardly talk about it. He would have 
I, well, I'm a little tired. I did not sleep well. I've, I've been a little sick. I was thinking maybe I should speak on Friday, and I'm definitely thinking I should have spoken tomorrow. <laughs> but let's start with just what he would have seen. He would have felt an overwhelming love to, for all human beings, save the human race. That was what he awoke to. At the same time, he awoke to their suffering. Both. Isn't that the truth, though? If you listen to people like the Dalai Lama, they have a tear in their eye, and the tear is the ocean. He's an ocean teacher. The tear in their eye is an ocean of love. But at the same time, they see the suffering. They're able to hold it, which is why in Buddhism, the Dalai Lama is selected as a child, a baby, and brought up in such a way that they can handle that role of spiritual teacher. Jesus, I believe, would have had to have had a similar experience. So uh, there he is. Um, he may have talked to his mother. He said, Mom, what's going on here? And she may have had some insight into it. But um, this makes the point, and, and we're getting to the historical uh, uh, setting of Jesus's inner life, which is Believe it or not, he would not have known what to do with that, and he did not know. Isn't that like life? There's a lot of times when we're faced with something, and it could be a very good thing. How am I going to live this? What am I going to do? So uh, actually, the glorification is a, a very human learning process. And um, I think I'll go through that in just a couple of minutes. And then, um, please, I'm going to sort of rely on a little conversation. Think about what's come up. And I'll come up with my, um, I'd like to hear someone say, I think you're dead wrong <laughs> uh, on this refuge issue. So um, the learning process that he went through is what is portrayed in Genesis. Um, the, that's the inner meaning of Abram and Sarah and Ishmael and Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel and Rebecca and Leah. Okay, these are stages of his inner development that he gradually learned how he would love people in such a way that it would result in the opening of the heavens, clarification, disperse the hells in the context of a new kind of community and thereby save the human race by saving that portion of the human race with, it, with which he was in contact. And we're one to follow the story. Um, first thing he runs into is temptation. That's the story of the kings fighting in the valley. There's all, they're all named. It's chapter 14. It's only two chapters afterward. He's given a lot of inspiration in 12 and 13. Given a big promise of um, the people that will, uh, the, the heavens will open and. The people that follow him will, in the heavens, not necessarily on earth, uh, would number like the stars. But then he falls into deep temptation. 
Why? If you, were, if you had this experience and then you were tempted, can anybody imagine what, the, what kind of temptation he might be uh, facing? Throw that out. Yes, abs- that is it. His temptation, greatest temptation, was not the fear of death. I don't believe it ever was. I believe once he had his vision of the human race, he would have submitted to death in a heartbeat. He would have done it right away if that would have worked. So he was, but it, he knew it wouldn't, and it, so he wasn't afraid of death. Um, well, I, I don't quite go that far. I don't think he would have given up, and he didn't. His temptation was, how is this possibly going to work? Well, I think it did work. I mean, because since he's had that experience, it's allowed other people, other humans throughout history to have the same experience, and it seems like nobody before him ever did. So. That's, you're right on the right track there. So. Uh, the very briefest of story of uh, summaries would be that once he got through his temptation, Ishmael represents he started to argue with people. He said, guess what? We've got to change the way we live. This Judaism thing is so provincial. It's a great law, but we have to deepen it and open it up. There's an inner meaning. I've, been, I've seen heaven and I've seen the earth and there's a whole different way, a whole different kind of community. And he, was, he got into one argument after another and that's of course what Ishmael represents. He had to learn how not to do that, and Isaac and Rebecca represent a more contemplative approach to his learning process. He withdrew. Isaac did not was not active in relation to comparison to the other patriarchs. He was portrayed as digging wells and meditating in the field, which is what he was doing. And the Lord, the God transformed his consciousness so that he no longer related to others on a, I, uh, on a separate basis. He became one with them. He became one with everyone else. And that made a huge difference is what Isaac represents. So people did begin to follow him. He had a following. And the next question becomes, what does Jacob represent? And it turns out that it does not represent further development of the Lord in his inner life, it represents the development of his followers. It's the church. And how did he teach them? He brought them right back to the Torah and started teaching them the literal, what we would call the literal sense of the word. And he taught them to read it as if they were children. It's, I found a place where, where one could interpret it that way. He said, let's start at the very beginning and he allowed them to see that this was about their inner lives. And that's why the new community had a different character to it. It was about how they treated each other on a day-to-day basis with love, regardless of status. And that was the big difference. He welcomed everyone. Lois. I would not say that you're wrong. Oh, oh, here it comes. (laughs) Because I am not completely right. I would just say be careful oh, I know. of confirming things that might interfere with your um, relationship. I know. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, I, I'm very careful. These are I'm working on a historical basis.
So, um, all right, well, just been warned. Uh, Got to get to the end of this. Um, what is, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Uh, that is when the community began to uh, understand and realize a deeper love for one another that held the community together and that would have been strong enough to withstand the forces of violence on the outside on the basis of nonviolent love. And that would be the Jake, whole Jacob cycle and finally in, in Joseph. We do then uh, re-enter Jesus' inner life and it appears to me that he's then, now he understands how it's going to work. He's accepting his imminent death and it's going to, he prepares himself for that. And by the time we get to, to the end of Genesis, he's ready to begin his public ministry. And perhaps then he realized that things had already uh, spiraled out of control and that this was not going to end well. George, uh-oh, here it comes again. No, no, no. Okay, go ahead, George. <laughs> no, I, 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 listen, you know me. I, I do know you, George. I love you since I, I met you. Great. And, uh, I warned you guys, come on. No, but, but here's the thing. Uh, I'm, I'm resisting what you're saying for the following reason. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. And, and, and it George. is that he got his soul from where? God. No. God. From Mary? No. Right from himself, okay? Now, in, in the Arcana, it says the greatest battle he had was not with the humans, but it was with the angels. Right. And the angels who said and tried to convince him, don't go into the world. And... Uh, okay. Yeah, we're not actually disagreeing. This is just a little bit of an interpretation. So I tell you what, I, I do want to open this up because we're basically out of time. I knew this would be a conversation where I would do most of the speaking. I do thank you for doing most of the listening. And um, my basic premise is that uh, seeking refuge meant, a lo meant uh, made sense then, and it makes sense today. With that, uh, we're not over time yet. Um, who would like to speak to that? Kenneth. I just think I can't help but seeing more and more parallels with Dr. King and what he did. Right. And it's all the same. I feel like, I guess I disagree with the angels that were trying to stop him because I guess God would seem that this was the only way to get people to start doing that. Right. So, I mean, and ever since he did that, there's been all these other people throughout history that have sort of done the same thing. Right. And of course, um, to speak to, to Lois's concern and to George's, I am not saying that Jesus did not enter the world to, enter, to save it in a very direct way. What I'm saying is, is that we're reminded, as we always are, that he taught love and I believe nonviolence. And that that is the most powerful force in the world. And he finally understood that. Please. Well, I grew up hearing the same thing that George was mentioning, and uh, I kind of felt like that was mostly what you were saying. Like, Thank I you. Was thinking that <laughs> the way I heard it is I was thinking about how 
sometimes um, part of love is very painful. Like you can love and you can be hurt by that love because maybe it's not returned or it's not appreciated. And so I think that there's an ability, like real deeply compassionate love has an ability to look at the bigger picture instead of seeing the immediate suffering. Ah. And then sometimes, you know, when you're doing that kind of love, people around you might be concerned because they see, they see the hurt that it's causing you. Like they see the temporary suffering. And out of love for you, like they want to stop you from suffering. But that's not always the greater love. Thank you. Um, Trevor's standing up for a very good reason. Um, our uh, Sunday school teachers need to get going, and we all do, so thank you very much.